I know. You're going to have to tell her this sort of behaviour is wholly unacceptable. She's only just eighteen, for God's sake. She's going, isn't she, in November? She made no answer. She'll be relieved, he thought. He turned off the light. He lay wakeful for an hour, then got up, went to the bathroom and put his clothes on. He thought now, putting his long-held fear into words, that something must have happened to her. It was ten to five and growing light. He thought, I will walk down to the corner. I will walk along the road until I find her. And if I don't, at least I won't be at home in that bed beside that woman hearing that baby cry. The only houses in Mill Lane were his own and a terrace of three small villas. Outside the middle one, a car stood parked by the grass verge. Briefly, George wondered why John Brooks had left his car there overnight when there was room for it on his driveway. The thought was fleeting, carrying him back inevitably to Amber, to have been assisted by Brooks in her efforts to use Diana's computer. Why not ask Diana herself? They had always disliked each other, those two, from the first. How could anyone dislike his little Amber? But where was she? Walking past Jewel Terrace, he came to the end of Mill Lane and looked up and down the Myfleet Road. He would do better to go back and fetch the car. Or he could go back and phone that boy, that Ben Miller. Oh, the relief if she was at the Millers in Myfleet. Except that she wouldn't be. Why would she be? She might have stopped over at one of her King's Markham friends, Lara, or was she called Megan, or Samantha, or Chris. He was clinging to straws, and he knew it. The sun was coming up. He stepped onto the grass verge, looked to the left of him, into the shade of the trees, and saw something white gleaming there, half hidden by the tall weeds. A hammer knocked at his heart, and a tide of terror tore through him, but he had to do it, he had to look. He saw her outflung hand, that stupid white watch with a golem face, and he fell forward, in a faint, perhaps, he didn't know, or just because lying across her body was the only place to be. The woman who came out of the house as they came up the drive had a child of about a year in her arms. Wexford and Detective Sergeant Hannah Goldsmith introduced themselves. You are Mrs. Marshallson? She nodded. Wexford had never before known a case of a father finding the murdered body of his daughter, never thought to see a bereaved parent prone over his child's corpse. They followed Mrs. Marshallson into the house. The child, a little boy, looked heavy to carry, and she set him down. Not yet able to walk, he crawled rapidly across the polished wood floor, saying, Mama! Mama! Diana Marshallson took no notice of him. Come in here. I don't know what I can tell you. When he came back, he was speechless. He's absolutely broken. Their expressions must have told her the misapprehension both were under. Oh, I'm not her mother. I'm George's second wife. What made your husband go out into the lane first thing this morning, Mrs. Marshallson? 
What time was it, exactly? I don't know, she said. I was asleep. He worried terribly when she was out at night. He went out to look for her. Hannah sounded incredulous. I suppose so. He must have known that something awful had happened. I woke up and the child cried. That was at 6.30. Diana Marshallson, Wexford thought, looked young enough to be this child's mother, but only just, maybe 45 or 46, a second wife who had perhaps never been married before and wanted a baby before it was too late. He rather admired her looks. Tall, handsome, dark-haired women with full figures were his type. His own wife, Dora, was such a one. The little boy tried to climb onto Diana Marshallson's lap. To Wexford it seemed that she hauled him up wearily and without much enthusiasm.